Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we'll find your path to total wellness. So besides healthier nutrition and exercise, which helps with cortisol, the idea of deep breathing. Every world culture, every great philosophy uh, has mechanisms by which people can take time to reflect. Plus, what is the cancer moonshot and one local physician's role? There's been a huge progress in understanding mechanisms of cancer through bioinformatics. So, so people have realized, researchers and uh, advocacy groups have realized this is the time to invest. And the lessons learned by a missionary nurse. I was able to find an organization that needed a nurse to be a part of their uh, team and they were going on a missionary trip to an orphanage in Russia. All that and a selection from our healing muse and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we'll explore the new effort that's been called the Cancer Moonshot and the contributions of some local cancer researchers. Plus, we'll have some lessons from a missionary nurse. But first, how to find your path to total wellness, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Well, the entire concept of wellness is more than one that just fits into the medical model of physical health. And joining us with his own concept of what constitutes wellness is Dr. Koshal Nadavati. He's Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at Upstate Medical University and the Director of Integrative Medicine at the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Nadavati. Thanks Thank for coming in. Now, you bring a very special orientation to wellness. Just give us a feeling. Tell us about that. Well, I think about the position of a clinician or a doctor uh, and the, th- the word health care. And we focused on disease management, disease orientation for a long time with prevention, management, innovation. But when it comes to helping people to optimize their living experience, I think about wellness as being the roots uh, of how we can get people grounded in a life routine that brings them contentment and peace. So, one of, so in order to get to that, I mean, place of peace, so to speak, or that grounded feeling, there are... There's more to it than just, let's say, exercise and diet, and although those might be components, and those are the things we mostly focus on. So give us an overview of what you think are kind of the important elements then. Well, when you think about life and the living experience, uh, you think about the mind, the body, the spirit. Uh, you think about people in context of themselves, their relationships, their community. Uh, and so helping people to understand that the physical health uh, is one aspect of their wellness, but the mind, the spirit, their relationship with themselves uh, and with community are just as important. So I like to talk about uh, what I call the core four, nutrition, physical exercise, stress management, and spiritual wellness. Uh, and that it's broader than a religious perspective. It's about understanding your stage in life, your place in community with yourself, and how do you optimize that experience so that you can be content with your content. Uh, so to speak. That's very interesting. That's a very good way of putting it. Because obviously what you're suggesting is that we don't 
exist in a vacuum, that we're not just, we all are obviously individuals and unique individuals, but we consist, we exist in a context, and that context is both an internal context and obviously the external context in terms of relate, as you said, relationships, community, our spirituality, and all of those things play a very important role in somehow achieving this so-called wellness. That's right. And you think about stress and distress and what we see in our communities and our society, and especially in the world at large these days. Uh, and think about yourself in relationship. Um, you're a part of every relationship you're in. And so it's sort of like the spokes on a wheel with you being at the center. You know, you can either focus on trying to impact every spoke, or you can focus on strengthening yourself. And what happens is, if you're not content or at peace, then none of those relationships have a chance for peace. But the minute you are, all of those relationships have a chance for contentment and peace. And so, is it easier to work on 50, or is it easier to work on one? <laughs> and too often, we ignore ourselves, uh, and that's where the problem starts. So instead of trying to change everyone else, you really have to start with the number one. That's exactly right. So how did you come to this very interesting, and first of all, I hear you focusing a lot on the word peace, that peace somehow is um, essential for achieving wellness. And I, and obviously it's not just peace, well, it's peace in the world, hopefully, but it starts with peace within. That's right. So how did you, where did you develop this perspective? Tell us a little bit about that. So, I mean, my background, uh, I was born in India, uh, and when I was seven, I moved to Rochester. My father was a homeopathic uh, medicine practitioner, uh, and my grandfather was a village doctor. Uh, so this is something that's been inherent in, in who I am. But uh, in college, I also minored in literature and philosophy. And so looking at world philosophies, look, understanding world cultures over time, what you start to see are common themes. And especially having worked in healthcare for the last two decades, you think about uh, stress, distress, and what I see with patients oftentimes, and there's a lot of common theme that comes up. And a lot of that relates to people not being satisfied or content or at peace in their own life. And what this does is leads to distress, but biochemically, it leads to a response in the body that increases stress or cortisol. Uh, and that can also have an impact on chronic disease when we talk about cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, uh, as well as inflammation that can lead to bowel irregularities, autoimmune conditions. So this word peace uh, is one that actually represents a state of being where the body is not as stressed. Uh, and so that actually helps in the healing process and in maintaining health. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm here with Dr. Koshal Nanavati, and we're talking about his core four pillars of wellness and how one can achieve um, health, I guess, wellness and health. But these concepts are fascinating and, in a way, a, a little bit of a different way of looking at the entire experience of, of life and health. But how do you? How does one get there? Now you recently had just has have just completed a book called The Core Four of Wellness. Tell us about that, the book, and what's in the book, and you know, let's talk a little bit more about how people can get actual effectuate some of these concepts, put right. them into practice. So uh, the uh, the book actually uh, started. My son is fourteen now. When he was two. 
and I had been married for about five years at that time. My wife uh, said one day, you know, I actually buy into what you're talking about now. So I already had won over, you know, arguably my toughest audience. (laughs) And uh, so she said, why don't you put it in book form so other people can get it, even outside of your own practice. So I started when he was two. And then over the years, the joke became that, you know, if you ever actually finish it, she said, you know, I'll publish it for you. So uh, (laughs) this year we finished it. Um, and so we published it, self-published. Uh, but the goal is really to share information that I've been sharing with patients over the years related to nutrition, uh, focusing on the best evidence. So Harvard has an evidence-based food plate that's based on all the current evidence we have. Uh, so it details that to some degree. Uh, so that tells you what to eat? What to eat. What amounts to eat? Uh, and prioritizing in the major categories. So the idea is helping people to get their big rocks in place because then the pebbles and sand can sort of take care of themselves versus focusing on the sand or the pebbles. Uh, exercise, the WHO has some great guidelines, the Healthy People 2020 objectives, and so giving people that core information that takes care of that big rock. So back back up for a second. So diet, you've gone to a great source with, yep. with that the Harvard program, and exercise, another great source. So you're giving that to people in the within your book? Within the book. Okay, and what's the third? And then with stress management, uh, the simple concept, and I call it simple, uh, the idea of owning what's yours and letting go of the rest, uh, it's a big challenge, right? I see so you smiling. See, I'm smiling. <laughs> I'm clearly smiling. So how does that, let's define that a little bit better. Say more about what that means. That's right. So uh, for people, it's a simple exercise where you can take some time to reflect on all the things that are stressors or distressors in your life. Uh, I actually had one person bring in, you know, eight pages when I asked them to do this. <laughs> and then I said, now split into two columns, things I can do something about, things I can't control. And she came back, and the one page was hers to own. The other seven were stresses in her life, but she wasn't directly responsible for them. And what it does is it allows you to focus on the things in your life that you can do something about, right? Make the change where you can impact it. And for those things that you don't directly control, you don't have to own them, right? But if you don't own them, how then do you cope with them, I guess, is the next question. And so what happens is whenever your mind goes to focusing on those things, come back to your list of things you can do something about. Take one, make an action plan, get it off your plate, get a nice permanent marker, and then erase it. And as you see your active item list shrinking, you know you're actively managing your life. And you're less distressed knowing that you're being the best that you can be for yourself. Uh, And that's truly the best we can be. I just came from teaching a first-year medical student class, and what we told them was being the best isn't always in your control, but being your best is. Personal best. That's correct. But let's get back to this idea of stress. So do you give concrete suggestions for, besides taking action on a particular stressor, if there are things that... um, if, if you're feeling high levels of stress, obviously, as you alluded to earlier, they develop you know, higher levels of cortisol, all kinds of bodily reactions, somatizations, all kinds of issues. What do you recommend for people as the best way to reduce stress? So besides healthier nutrition, which can help reduce inflammation, and exercise, which helps with cortisol, the idea of deep breathing, right? We talk about meditation, and some people are turned off by that word, still in our society, thinking of it as a secular activity. 
But the reality is it's about deep breathing. And every world culture, every great philosophy uh, has mechanisms by which people can take time to reflect, uh, to connect, uh, and deep breathing or meditation are another way to do that. So uh, I teach people how to do something called golden light meditation. Yes, I was going to ask you that because I think besides the fact that people can be turned off, quote unquote, from the concept of meditation, I think a lot of people don't understand how to get there. That's right. It's it's very kind of elusive and and there's so much material out there that's linked also to theology that people may be put off by that. That's right. And there's a science behind it. So the idea of deep breathing in through the nose, out through the mouth, uh, you can breathe in for five seconds, eight seconds, ten seconds, start with a, f- sh- a shorter time and then increase that and breathing out through the mouth. But when you breathe in, it's abdominal breathing. So your belly comes out. When that happens, the diaphragm goes down. Your lungs expand in the areas where you have the greatest volume, so you get more oxygen in. Uh, That helps to also blow off carbon dioxide, which is a trigger for anxiety. So I tell people to visualize a golden light at the top of their head, and when they breathe in, just see that light expanding outward, and when they breathe out, see it going down into the body, soaking your body like a sponge, taking it down into your fingertips, down to your toes, and then slowly bringing it back. Uh, and in doing that, in that process, the mind can wander. Our mind is restless at times. When it does, just come back to the light. It's a simple thing, and it can take two minutes. It can take ten minutes. People can do it for longer periods. Uh, even ten deep breaths alone can have an impact on reducing anxiety by blowing off the carbon dioxide so that you're not about to trigger an anxiety attack. Uh, so one simple breath can interrupt a pattern. Uh, a friend of mine named David G. Uh, travels the world teaching this. Uh, it's called the pattern interrupt breath. So if you're distressed... Say that again, the pattern interrupt breath? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in that, at any point, if you're distressed, just take one deep breath, and what it does creates a pause in the pattern that was causing you distress so that now you can reflect and change direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I've been doing with patients recently is instead of trying to change your life 180 degrees... How about starting with one degree of change, right? Impact one simple thing. See how the worldview looks. If you like it, stay there. If you don't, make one degree of change until you get to that place where you're contented and you're finding peace. And again, for a person at 20 versus 40 at 60, the same person at different stages in their life may find that different things define contentment and peace for them. And so we do need to take time to reflect throughout our life about where we are, Are we contented? Are we at peace? And every fork in the road where we have to make decisions, if we choose our peace, then we're constantly building a life that's grounded in our peace. Yeah, that's very well said. And it strikes me that it's very, very important to do something that you just said, which is to take time, to stop and think and pause and reflect. And whether it's through deep breathing or some other methodology, to take time. And I think in our very harried lives these days with 24-7 news cycles, with being plugged into every kind of apparatus on the planet, it's very common that people are not taking those kinds of reflective moments to stop and pause and reflect and to maybe even change direction as a well, result. And, and we're all scheduled, right? We all have schedules. I came here at a scheduled time. We have a scheduled time. So we don't put in our schedule a time for ourselves. Uh, just yesterday, I told a patient, you know, you need to 
put that in your schedule, and that way you can be better off. Let's get to the fourth thing. So we, we went through diet, we went through exercise, we went through um, stress and spirituality very quickly because we're going to run out of time. So with spiritual wellness, the focus is contentment and peace and understanding that the word selfish is not a bad word when it means self-care, self-love, and self-respect. Uh, so most of us aren't selfish enough. I'd encourage our audience to start being more selfish in uh, taking care of themselves, focusing on their wellness. Yeah, very important words. I think that word selfish has a very negative connotation in our um, in our world, and I came up with my own over the course of many years, and I said self-full. And I think that's something that's very important in many people, especially in today's world where we're juggling so many responsibilities. They have a really hard time learning how to do that. Right. So I thank you so much for coming in and sharing this with us. Your book is out there. I hope people decide to take a look at it. But in any case, your work is very, very important. Thanks so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Koshal Nanavati, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at Upstate Medical University. And um, he's also the Director of Integrative Medicine at the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. up next, the cancer moonshot from a local perspective. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, during the 2016 State of the Union address, President Obama called on Vice President Biden to lead a new national moonshot initiative to eliminate cancer as we know it. And the White House has announced a new $1 billion initiative to jumpstart this work. Here to tell us more about this historic undertaking and his role in it is Dr. Leshik Katula. He's Associate Professor of Urology and of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Upstate Medical University, and he's the Associate Director for the Basic and Translational Research Program at the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Katula. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So help us understand why this is such an historic undertaking. What's happening in cancer research today that paves the way for something like this? I think there are uh, several um, issues here that makes it such a big uh, event or happening. We have made a huge progress towards the cancer um, treatment, understanding how, how cancer come about, as well as this investment is huge. Um, it involves also uh, many different levels of participation, so, uh, private um, sources, industry, government, and, and uh, pa uh, patients advocacy groups are joining the, the efforts to uh, double the rate of uh, cancer uh, diagnosis, treatment, and prevention efforts. So it's interesting because I, I think I read somewhere that as many as 600,000 people die of cancer in this country annually. Yes, that's correct. 
But there's been some major progress in terms of There's been major progress cures. because the, uh, we, actually cancer researchers have progressed so much. We're actually um, saving a lot of people by current therapies. But still, a lot of need to be done. So that's why this, this uh, Cancer Moonshot Initiative is so important. It's actually a billion dollars, $200 million in 2016 and about $800 million in 2017. So in a very short time, there's a lot of money being poured into um, this initiative. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's wh what about this time in history? I mean, you've mentioned that we've come a long way. We're poised in a lot of ways, and the fact that it's also this idea of it's across disciplines, it's, it's this idea of trying to get all partners kind of on the same page, pulling together in one direction, all of those things. But what has happened in cancer research lately that kind of is, it's almost like an inflection point. It's a time where we, we really see that the opportunity is to be seized. There's been a huge progress in understanding the mechanism of cancer through bioinformatics. Also, immunotherapy has made a huge progress, and uh, uh, there are some exciting news for uh, different types of treatment of cancer using immunotherapy. So, so people have realized, researchers and uh, advocacy groups have realized this is the time to invest. This is the time to come together, share data easier and better, combine our resources, um, government wants to help us to uh, publish and access the data easier. And, and to share data. To share the data. And which it's, is cru crucial. Absolutely. Because this is absolutely critical time to be able to share the data quickly so we can then uh, be able to make progress much faster. In other words, as opposed to being in competition, it's collaboration. Exactly, because because when we, I mean, this is a, cancer is a very complicated disease, actually it's a multiple diseases. It's a very hard problem to tackle by one laboratory, by one researcher. We need to combine both dis disciplines and resources to be able to to answer, you know, the, qu the critical questions in cancer. So what, there is a thing that they developed called the Cancer Moonshot Task Force. Do you know much about that, what they're doing with that? So, so there, is a, there is a group of people that um, is sifting through the ideas, the critical ideas that need to be prioritized to be tackled first. And there is a number, both the, the number of initiatives involve uh, both the government, private uh, in, industry. Uh, industry, as well as cancer advocacy uh, groups to come together and 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 propose uh, um, prioritize prioritize and propose what needs to be done first. Mm -hmm. For example, some of the ideas uh, are expediting access to cancer compounds through the uh, National Cancer Institute resources. Okay, another idea is making clinical trials accessible, more accessible to patients. But patient participation in clinical trials is critical because the drugs cannot be moved to therapy unless they are they go through the very rigorous clinical trials and are being evaluated for toxicity and, and treatment efficacy. Efficacy, right. So another thing, we have so much data that we covered so, uh, already from um, drug treatments and so on. And we need to learn how, this, how to analyze this data better and faster. So we, we want to in, uh, increase computing power to, to analyze the data better and faster. So, and to and share it To across. share it with others as well. There is lots of cancer genomic data. There, there are uh, ideas about opening resources that, through which many different types of 
researchers can access this data to use to use the data in their to research. almost have like um, I don't want to say a single data bank, but to have access multiple access points for researchers all across the spectrum to uh, be able to access the data. And um, there are many um, um, initiatives that will link, uh, for example, the um, uh, current uh, funding agency, private funding agency, uh, uh, to work together um, to share the data, to obtain more funds for, the, for their grant initiatives and so on. So, so uh, almost every uh, cancer-related foundation is participating in this initiative wow. and pledged to double their um, funding uh, for research and for grants. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with urologist and cancer researcher, Dr. Leszek Gatula. We're talking about the new cancer moonshot and um, his role, actually, in this effort. So I know I, I came upon something that was very interesting, that in the um, Department of Health and Human Services alone, they're going to be, they, they've outlined very specific goals, one of which is prevention and cancer vaccine development. So is that something that's a new idea, or is that the whole idea of vaccines something that is has been on the forefront? Vaccines against cancer. So we, we uh, the acceleration of the knowledge about vaccines is huge in the last 10 years. And there have been some fantastic uh, developments from uh, glioblastoma. And we all know about Joe Biden's son who died from glioblastoma. He failed the therapy. However, there, the same therapy tr uh, successfully treats many, many patients. So um, this excitement about vaccines uh, is uh, yet there will be more money for, for research uh, using vaccines. We need to understand better how to treat different types of cancer using this. Uh, and we need patient participation. Therefore, this is so, so important for us. And also that there's a real effort for early cancer detection. I mean, I, that, that seems like a, you know, a very important thing to be able to perhaps detect biomarkers, earlier on, before a cancer becomes out of control? Yeah, so, so both we want to understand both the, the factors that lead to cancer, right? So we need to understand the uh, epidemiology of cancer better. So The epidemiology, yes. On, the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on a much bigger level, we need patient participation and population participation, understanding these risks. So there are, there are some um, initiatives in, relate to um, gathering the people's data on uh, through the computer family histories exactly what yes. they've experienced with certain treatment protocols how it how yes. it relates and to and also mine that data and also information for f phase one clinical trials to be able to so patients could read about and know the results much faster so we can then in the, get enrolled in phase two and phase three trials i also read that it was interesting that they're trying to also increase access for underserved populations to cancer therapies that might not have been right. able to get them before. That's another component of this. Exactly, and one of the populations we know that um, veterans administration is 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 really a huge part of that of that initiative. Through that, um, with uh, the more uh, veterans will be um, will be able to access information about clinical trials and participate in clinical trials. All, also. Uh, we will we we're gonna involve patients, underserved population, in more studies through that. 
uh, initiative. The big watchword that I hear all the time now in cancer research is, you know, immunotherapy, immunotherapy. I mean, you know, you think about Jimmy Carter is the kind of the poster child for having beaten so-called his, his um, cancer, um, you know, using immunotherapy. So that seems to be a very big, strong push to, to try to understand how that would work. But also these combination therapies, the idea of doing these personalized, targeted therapies. What's going on in that arena? So, so, so the, the whole idea about uh, personalized uh, cancer therapy is, 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 is very important. So the, we treat every patient as, a, uh, as, as, a, as one. Right? A, unique, we, a unique, unique individual. As a unique individual. Uh, we want to understand everything about that patient. So the, basically the, 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 the therapy is tailored to, to that particular patient. All the changes that happen in the tumor and outside the tumor. And their own genetic makeup. Exactly. So it involves, so because of that initiative, it, it's multidisciplinary. Uh, approach to patients, understanding what's going on, and and uh, adjusting the treatment to 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 that patient, and combining multidisciplinary approach in the diagnosis and treatment is the key for that. Uh, so success. who who are the elements of this multidisciplinary team that you would mention? In other words, besides um, a medical input, are there geneticists? I mean, who else work on that type of a team? Oh well. You, you start with the primary care doctor who contacts the, uh, uh, the specialist. The oncologist. oncologist. And then you have surgeons working together I with see. radiation oncologists, speciali uh, specialists involving the, the specific discipline. In my case, it would be urologist or a breast cancer specialist that would uh, then meet together and, and, and plan the, the specific treatment. So the basically, they're getting everyone involved. I even read that the FDA is going to be playing a role. I mean, it seems like on a, such a broad scale, this is kind of a full court press, as we say, to to basically try to get our arms around cancer in a really comprehensive way. Yeah, you mentioned FDA is actually very, very important because of what um, FDA plays a regulatory role in moving the drugs. Uh, very promising drugs into treatment. So... That's why we have a very, uh, uh, if we, if we uh, in decrease the time for the regulatory review, then we'll be able to move the drugs to treatment much, much faster. And, and in order to decrease it, you don't want to do it in a risky way, but you yes. need to have the FDA yes. financially supported adequately to do the job. So those cancer-targeted drugs will be reviewed faster so they can get to patients much faster. So in the little bit of time we have left, what are you doing here in your role as part of this whole initiative? So I'm, I'm, I'm a researcher, primary researcher in, in urology, and my focus is prostate cancer. We've developed very interesting uh, findings in, in prostate cancer diagnosis. and we Are you look looking for biomarkers, that kind of so thing? So this includes a, a, a biomarker which we recently published. It's a wave complex, uh, and we think that by understanding the wave complex role, we can predict the bad cancers, bad prostate cancer very, very early. So if you can predict some, someone who would die from their prostate cancer as opposed to someone who could outlive their prostate cancer, that alone would be a huge contribution. Exactly. And so the, yes. the point is that, that you, you would be one of these soldiers in the field, so to speak, using these funds as part of this kind of initiative to, to you know, 
to pr promote your cause, but your cause is part yes. of the larger cause. And I work as in a team. I work in a team with my with Gennady Braslavsky, who is in charge of urology here, with uh, Dr. Bogart, who is in charge of Upstate Cancer Center, and we work together on uh, on to to uh, further this uh, to further this, this effort. Thank you yes. so much. This is incredible and so exciting. My guest has been um, my guest has been Dr. Leshek Katula, associate professor of urology, biochemistry, and molecular biology at Upstate Medical University, and the associate director for the basic and translational research program at the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next up, some lessons from a missionary nurse. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, despite the amazing advances made in the field of medicine during the last century, not everyone has access to proper medical care. Individuals in undeveloped and developing regions of the world often suffer from frequent illnesses due to a lack of proper health care facilities and modern medicine. Missionary nurses work to help fight illnesses in these areas by caring for the residents' physical and spiritual needs. And here to tell us more about all this is Victoria Oakman. She's a registered nurse at the Upstate's Golisano Children's Hospital who has had this experience firsthand. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. So help us understand, what does it mean when we use the, the term missionary nurse? What is a missionary nurse? So as defined by the dictionary definition, it states that a missionary nurse is someone that is willing to help treat those that are in ur urgent need of care. It is someone who is trained in both the spiritual and physical needs of people and enthusiastic and eager about doing a job or supporting a cause. That sounds like it could be any nurse, though, in a, in a way. But what makes someone a missionary nurse? They have to be willing to leave the comforts of um, their work and home environment and travel to a part of the world that is currently experiencing poverty or in a state of crisis and be willing to um, adventure out into the unknown and deal with whatever circumstances are presented to them in order to try to make a difference for the better and help those in need. So basically, this whole idea of being underdeveloped in an underdeveloped region or a developing region of the world is a key element to the, the the definition or the role of a missionary nurse. Yes. But I think you alluded to the fact, even before we started talking on air, that this is not just limited to places outside of the United States. Exactly. Any area that is experiencing poverty or is in a state of crisis, we have even many regions of those within our own country here in the United States um, of people that are in need of care in terms of both spiritual and physical care. And a missionary nurse 
is someone that is able to go to these people and to assist them in any way that they can. Well, so let's explain though what they actually do. What do, what do you do as a missionary missionary nurse? I want to get to your specific experience in a few minutes, but just in general, what are the kinds of tasks, what are the kinds of responsibilities, or what are the kinds of skills that a missionary nurse needs? Um, many in terms of the skills, it's whatever you have learned in nursing school or whatever a nurse does pretty much in her every single or his every single um, daily work as a nurse. All of those skills is all that you need, as well as a heart for helping people. As long as you have those two things, you can go on. And m many of the things that usually a missionary nurse ends up doing in the field is um, either education, education of how to do the, um, how to provide basic hygiene of activities of daily living to oneself and to help prevent the spread of infections. It is to providing life-saving vaccines. Um, it is to helping um, improve the nutrition of individuals through both teaching and actually helping them learn how to prepare healthy foods and find those types of resources. Um, and sometimes it is performing life-saving surgeries or helping and assisting with those and helping um, take care of the people as they recover. So pretty much anything that a nurse does at a job can be done in the missionary field. But in the missionary field, would you all, it almost seems to me like because it's in, a, in an area where you don't have a lot of support, you might be doing things in that environment that you might not be called for doing in a, in a standard American hospital. For example, you, you might deliver a baby yourself. Is that true? Yes, that is, for some that is the case and that is what happens. So it's a lot of out in the field work, thinking on the spot and just um, doing the best that you can with the resources that you have given at the per, uh, current moment. So basically, the, what are the major obstacles? I mean, we were, we were alluding to them. Obviously, if you're in an impoverished area um, and you don't have everyday luxuries like electricity, even telephone service, maybe even running water isn't available, what, you know, how does that impact on your ability to carry out those tasks? So all of those um, are obstacles that you mentioned. Those all exist and existed in my personal trip when I was um, on my journey as a missionary nurse. Um, and it just really... Uh, makes you be very diligent about what you do and how you do it, thinking on your feet, and uh, really trying to do, brings it down to doing whatever you can with the resources you have. Um, there's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of creativity yeah. that goes on, and you have to become um, content with the fact that you're not going to fix absolutely everything for the people that you come into contact with. But you do what you can, and you just prioritize the needs that are have to be met right now now and that you can um, help meet those needs for those individuals and realize that you will not be able to fix everything for them, but do the best that you can. Right. One of the things that I thought was very interesting as I began to look into this whole world, because it was not something I was familiar with before I knew I was going to be talking with you, was that in that environment, even some very minor illnesses or infections can actually be fatal for people. Yes. I mean. In, in an environment like we're describing. Mm -hmm. So your role is really crucial and potentially life-saving. Correct. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with registered nurse Victoria, Victoria Oakman, and we're talking about missionary nursing. Um, so basically, missionary nurses 
function, as we said, in these underdeveloped areas. Um, what, what, what motivated you? Tell us about your own path. You became an RN. Tell us a little about yourself, your story. So um, before I probably even that, I uh, before I even became an RN, I was always around children, and children was an absolute um, essential part of my life. Babysitting, anything sort of, um, anything that revolved about around kids within my church or my community, I was always present and there. Um, I had been on different missionary and nonprofit organization type of trips before, but I never went on one where I could really utilize and um, kind of keen in on my knowledge as a nurse when I was on such a trip. And that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to bring my nursing to a part of the world that was in poverty and that was lacking. So um, for me, it was through my acquaintances. I was able to find an organization that needed a nurse to be a part of their uh, team. And they were going on a missionary trip to an orphanage in Russia. And um, it was my biggest obstacle probably beside I had the drive, I wanted to go, and all of that was present. My biggest obstacle was receiving the time off from my job here at Upstate. And um, I looked into the values and mission statement of Upstate and innovation and discovery, respect of people, serving the community, and integrity are just a few of them. And I realized that all of those values is what I wanted to accomplish in my trip as a missionary nurse. So I approached my manager and um, asked her if there's anything that could be done in order to grant me this time off. She, um, she said this was never a question that was ever presented to her before, so it took some deliberation and it took some time for her to think about it, but in the end, she was able to grant me my desire and I did receive my time off. And how, much from, time, how much time did, did, did you spend as a missionary? It was a nurse? month. Okay. Um, it, it was a month-long trip, so it was a good chunk of time that I needed off. And after that was granted, I knew that I would be able to fulfill this desire of mine and go on such a trip. But what's interesting is that you have history of being on missionary trips before. Yes. As a student, as a younger yes. student, before yes. you had your RN. Mm -hmm. what, what did you do on those kinds of missionary trips, just briefly? Those were just basically going um, to also um, different parts of the world that are in poverty, and we just spent pretty much time with children giving them love and affection they did not receive most of my work was with orphans and um so those kids are very special kids and close to my heart and all they really want is somebody to love them and spend time with them so it was just doing basic childhood experiences that you would do with a child um in order to give them a glimpse of hope within their dark gray childhood so obviously spirituality is at the center of a lot of this for you mm -hmm. because obviously that's what drove you initially even before this experience as a missionary nurse was some kind of a connection to your own mm -hmm. sense of faith Mm -hmm. And and so tell us a little yes. bit more about that. Um, I I grew up as a Christian and I believe in God and one of the greatest um, one of the greatest tasks that we have as Christians is order is to help those that are in need and those that are the least of us. And in my mind, the orphans are the kids that not by anything wrong that they did. It wasn't because of any of their choices, unfortunately became the least in these world, in this world and somebody that nobody really cares for. So um, 
it is through my belief in God that I have this great heart that just hurts for them and any chance that I get I love spending it with orphans and giving them a glimpse of hope and telling them that they're not lost in this world and that they're not alone that there is people who love them and there's a lot of people who love them and they can do great things in this world as long as they have faith and continue on and pursue their dreams that's very beautiful I'm wondering how this trip as a missionary nurse as you said so articulately bringing the skills that you already now have into that making it one with your spirituality how is this different than perhaps earlier trips that you took Probably I would say that uh, now reflecting back on it since this trip happened about a year ago already, um, the greatest difference happened within me. And that is something um, that I would like to say to anybody who maybe is even thinking of ever taking such a trip. It changes you. The person that goes on a trip, a missionary nurse or a nurse that embarks on such a journey, you cannot come back without being changed. How, and how I was changed. How? Um, especially in my nursing um, practice now that I've been back, I changed in the way that how I interact, especially with the teenagers that I take care of. It's a very, very interesting, very difficult age group to take care of in the hospital. It wasn't my forte before, but now I realized, um, how I can be accountable and respectful of them. And, um, I usually am now the nurse on the floor that takes care of all the teenagers because I really can help them get better. And we figure out ways we either make some sort of bets or we make agreements agreements, and they feel um, respect for me and I earn that from them. And it is by being accountable and straightforward with them and giving them clear direction and follow through. Um, just a quick step back with orphans, um, Kids, they absolutely hold on to every single word that you tell them, and they will never forget it. So making promises and keeping those is something that I try to follow through with my teenagers within the hospital. And um, I love what this experience has um, brought out of me as a nurse, and I enjoy working as a nurse at Upstate and continuing to do the best that I, job that I can here with the kids that I take care of at our hospital in our community. It's amazing, and it sounds like probably I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So would you recommend people doing this kind of work? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> and how does somebody go about finding out about it? You alluded to the fact that you had some personal connections, maybe through your church, but if somebody listening out there thinks that that's something they might want to do. The internet, any sort of social media um, is a great way. It just takes punching it into Google, list your city, and you can find an organization that you can go with. And in your case, do you plan to do it again? Yes, hopefully very soon. Wow. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing this very inspiring story. And I think you are a great asset to this community and to Upstate Scalisano Children's Hospital and all the kids who have the opportunity to have you nurse for them. So thanks so much for coming in. Thank My you. guest has been Victoria Oakman. She's a registered nurse at the uh, Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital, and she spent time as a missionary nurse. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. 
Susan Nathiel grew up in Oklahoma with a scientist father who wrote textbooks and a mentally ill mother who wrote poetry. Thanks to them, she says, she became a psychotherapist and a writer. Two professions she illuminates so beautifully in her essay, Let's Not Tell Them Everything. Let me read you an excerpt that comes from the essay's end. The daughter has finally found a place for her mom, who has the beginnings of dementia now to live with. Eventually, defeated on the grammar front and the logic front, I resorted to the last refuge of small minds, action. Facing the doorway, I crooked my elbow out toward her and casually suggested we go for a ride. She hunted around for her little pocketbook, carefully putting a tiny and only slightly stained pale blue beret over her wild and curly white hair, and we walked away from the whole thing arm in arm. The three-hour car ride to my brother's home was surprisingly serene, as my mother assumed we were just going for a little visit. My brother received us warmly and distracted her enough that she seemed to forget all about her apartment, her eviction, and the long ride to his house. She stayed with him for a couple of months, slowly coming to realize she would not be returning to her little apartment. My brother and I, separately and together, commiserated with her protests that she had been heartlessly evicted by an evil and illiterate landlord. She had always been resilient, though, not one to spend time mourning losses. She was ready to move on. Grateful for her openness to whatever would come next, I began the search to find a place for her. Not just any place, but a place for her. I finally found Arterburn, a turn-of-the-century two-story frame house divided into rooms for older folks who needed some looking after, but didn't need ongoing medical help. She only had to be able to go up and downstairs, take care of herself and her belongings, and eat her meals in the dining room with the other residents. It was like an old-fashioned boarding house, a throwback to the pre-industrial care of the odd and the elderly. Best of all, they didn't want a comprehensive medical history. She actually fit in well with that quiet group of elders, sharing stories and meals, walking around the old-fashioned neighborhood, venturing down to the library and little store a block away. Her dementia moved at such a slow pace that I felt reassured for the time being and glad of the decisions I had made along the way. Stories about my mother had always been my shameful secrets. There is a look people give if you talk about a parent wandering downtown in her nightgown and being brought home by the police. All through school and beyond, I steered conversations in other directions to avoid the inevitable times when women wanted to talk about their relationships with their mothers. They thought that their mothers were crazy for not letting them date a particular boy or later not agreeing about how to take care of the new baby. I didn't say no, a crazy mother is one you visit in the psych ward who might not remember you because of the ECT treatment she had that morning. Strangely enough, I found myself telling the eviction story casually, easily, to shared laughter. Once other people's parents started having dementia, suddenly everyone had these weird stories about their parents' strange behavior, and my mother fit right in. I fit right in. It was such a luxury joining in the conversations about mothers, when I chimed in with my own stories, like the one about the kitchen floor and the IRS, they now seemed funny and poignant instead of horrifying. Once her madness looked like dementia, my isolation was over. She probably didn't realize how easily her old delusions could hide inside the new diagnosis of dementia, and I wondered what she really remembered of her past history as a mental patient. But maybe she had answered that question in her own enigmatic way. 
As I had driven her to her admission appointment at Arterburn, she asked me why we had to have an interview with them. So they can get to know you, I guess, I said unhelpfully. She looked at me sideways, smiled her tiny little smile, and said very softly, let's not tell them everything. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we learn all about pediatric trauma. Plus, we'll get an update on bullying and its long-term impact, and how hospital ethics consultants can help families navigate tough choices. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.